Helo a chroeso i bodlediad yr Academy Genedlaethol ar gyfer arweinyddiaeth a ddysgol yng Nghymru. Podlediad sy'n rhannu materion ac arferion arweinyddiaeth allweddol ar draws y sector addysg yma yng Nghymru ac yn rhyngwladol. Hello and welcome to the podcast from the National Academy for Educational Leadership in Wales, a podcast that shares key leadership issues and practices across the education sector here in Wales and internationally. Good morning to you all and welcome to our Leadership Unlocked series. I'm Tegwan Ellis, Chief Executive of the National Academy for educational leadership and it's great to see so many of you logged on this morning to listen to our guest speaker Dr Simon Breakspear. I should say good evening to Simon who has stayed up to contribute to this webinar uh, today. So without further ado it gives me great pleasure to welcome our guest speaker Dr Simon Breakspear to present to us this morning. Well, Tegwin, thanks so much for that warm introduction and good morning, everyone. I'm thrilled to be joining you. If you wouldn't mind, as we kick off this session this morning, why don't you lean into the chat bar and just let me know who you are and the organization or team that you're coming in from today. Feel free to welcome others uh, on the chat as well. And as you'll learn pretty quickly, I take audience participation very well. And so would love it if you could drop into the chat bar and just let us know who you are and where you're coming in from today. Thank you, Helen Jones, off first off into the chat bar and would love it if others could join, both letting us know who you are and offering a morning greeting to colleagues. Well, uh, I've been working uh, in different parts, particularly in Southeast Wales from afar over the last year and a half as we've been exploring together different approaches to respond to complexity with greater levels of leadership agility. But this morning, Tegwin and the team have asked me to explore some different areas of my research and work. And one of the things that happened to my team is we are partnering alongside hundreds of school teams early 2020, is that many of our longer term partnership work ended up like your work being utterly disrupted through COVID. And over the last two and a half years, as we've continued this work, one of the things I've been able to do is to learn alongside leaders about how we navigated each phase of this crisis. And then as we start to make sense of where we are now. And so this morning, I wanna explore with you what it might look like in your work, in your team, in your organization, to think about leading for post-crisis renewal. Now, Paul reminded me when we were getting on that this is far from over and his work as a head teacher already experiencing in this new calendar, in this new school year, the ongoing disruption and frustrations of absentee, sickness, and those operational setbacks that has beset us over the last couple of years and still seem to be hanging around. But there is a sense where, although some of that is continuing, that we find ourselves in the long tail of COVID. And for many of us, we need to take time to make sense of what we've been through, what it means, and what it's gonna look like to lead our teams and our organizations through on the other side. So we frame this up, you know, one of the things that people have been talking about a lot over the last three years is complexity. 
I want to say, well, schools have always been complex places. They're human places. Think about the complexity that comes from serving the communities that you serve, trying to lead teams of educators. You know what complexity feels like. But what happened around March 2020 was this sudden shock of extreme external uncertainty and ongoing disruption. And it's this concoction of the normal human complexity of beautiful school and leadership life, and then the ongoing uncertainty and disruption. And so it feels a lifetime ago now, doesn't it? As we think about what we'd planned for April 2020 and how that eventuated. And let's be clear, as someone who teaches at a university, no one prepared you for this. No one did a unit in their educational masters that was leading through a once in a hundred year pandemic. And what we found ourselves involved in is a huge natural educational experiment. I've got to tell you in research, it's often very hard to get through ethics approval and any of you who've been involved in any type of master's or uh, postgraduate study will know that often one of the great hurdles is to get through ethics. Well, I can tell you the experiment we've all been running over the last two and a half years would never have got ethics approval. We've been running a huge natural educational experiment in the wild, and we've all experienced in the different types of educational settings that you're all working and serving in, all different things that we can never imagine actually doing on purpose. Would you mind just leaning into the chat bar and let me know what are some of the most extreme things that you think about now reflectively that were part of this huge natural educational experiment in your educational context? Uh, for example, we sent all the kids home for multiple months. But what were some of the other things we look back that if you saw it through the lens of running a huge educational experiment, what are some of the things that happened in your context? Can I get everyone to write the major thing or some of the major things, no matter how obvious they might seem now? There. All right, Helen says, look, being actually able to lead by my laptop, not always having to be the first car in and last car out. The complexity of each learner's home life started to become uh, much clearer to us. Simon says, sudden change to online learning. Thank you. Can you imagine if we had have just announced every teacher has to teach online within three weeks? That wouldn't have gone so well. And yet we did it. We were far more agile, far more nimble, far more flexible than we would have ever imagined that we could have been. We learned lots about health needs and how to support medically vulnerable learners. We learned all sorts of things about managing each other's anxiety and uncertainty, home parental engagement, supporting mental health and well-being came to the fore. And many of the systems I'm working with now, they're actually no longer just talking about learning, but at the center of their model, like in a system, I do a lot of work here in Victoria, the state that Melbourne is in, learning and well-being are now in the center of their new learning framework. And there's all these things, meetings on Zoom, um, professional learning in different ways. We tried so many different things live. And one of the things you'd expect, one of the things any theorist would probably expect when you go through something like a pandemic, that all these natural experiments, these extreme differences in how that we taught and we met together and the ways of working, and particularly around the ways of working for adults, by the way, that this could have been and probably should have been a portal. As one author wrote in the Financial Times, historically pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine the world anew. 
This one is no different. It is a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. And yet here we are in the tail end, the tail end of one of the most extreme experiences of our lives, a two and a half years or so that we will remember and talk about and reminisce and sense make for the rest of our lives. But the frame I want to ask educationally today to all of us in leadership is organizational leadership, system leadership, governance, is to ask, it was so profound. It impacted our lives in so many different ways. We're still coping, I think, for many of us with the systematic exhaustion of it all. And yet, when I look around the educational landscape, as I engage with hundreds of school teams, I'm already starting to see a snapback to defaults. So what I want to do this morning is to get you to think with me about what it looks like to be where we are together right now to think together about what we've been through, where we are now and where we're going. And I want to put a particular focus on what I call two potential futures over the coming year or so. One way of thinking about what we've been through, and it is a summary here of what we've been through, is to think here about a curve. We think about early on, we went through the first phase of the, work, of the, of the pandemic, which I'd call the crisis phase. And in that crisis phase, it was particularly that first April, perhaps through to November, October in 2020, we were all just trying to get through. For many of us, we thought our schools would just be closed for a month or two, and it would be a little bit like other natural disasters. Here in Australia, we might have floods or bushfires or with um, colleagues in New Zealand, they might have had an earthquake. And you would have similar where sometimes something happens and there's a crisis and then there's a reversion right back to where we were before. But then we've all been in this extended phase, and it's what I call the adaptation phase. And in that adaptation phase, we weren't able to just go back to what we were doing before. We had extended periods of lockdowns, extended periods of people being away, extended periods where we were actually having to innovate and adapt our systems and processes, not just for a short period of time, but for an extended period of time. And there's no doubt the silver line of lining, if there is one of that extended period of time, is the behavior change, the shifts that we really started to make over time as we knew we actually had to hold this way of working going forward. But I think we're in this transition now. And I want to say it's not that it's over, but we're in this transition now of working out what are we going to do next? And I think one of the futures is what I'd call a renewal future. And it's a future that sort of takes all the best of the past, all the deep learning that we've had here, and starts to craft a different path that actually makes sense and makes use of all of the incredible work and effort and pain and energy that we've been through. But I actually want to suggest that the more likely path isn't renewal. When people are exhausted, when they're tired, when they're fatigued, when they feel the way that most educational leaders describe to me the way they feel, where they're still energetic about the work, but they have a deep systemic exhaustion. And when we're exhausted, humans do an interesting thing. We typically snap back to defaults. Defaults aren't bad, by the way. Defaults aren't negative. Defaults are just the way that we've done things for the majority of our time. 
And what I think we're starting to see, and you can tell me whether this is true in your team, in your organization, without judgment, is in the exhaustion, we're coming out of this adaptation, and then we're kind of oscillating in a very simple reversion frame where we're on track pretty soon to feel like it's 2019 again in the way that we're meeting together, in the way we're communicating together, in the role of parents and caregivers and the education delivery, in the way that we run our professional learning, in the way that we do our inspections, in the way that we think about assessment. We were deeply challenged. We got pushed to the edge. And my concern is that the end result of all of this may well be to experience 2019 in around 2024. You see, this push that we went through, something we would never ask for, helped us break free from certain constraints. Who would have thought we could just cancel national assessments for a while or utterly adapt the way that we deliver certain things, that we could trust teachers in the way that they choose certain elements of professional learning? that we could let people go home and then join a meeting online because it didn't actually matter that they were there at the time. They had all these ways that we were breaking free of old ways of working. And we even forged new approaches. And unfortunately, often to forge new approaches, you need heat and pressure. And we went through that. But now we've got to start to work out where are we on this journey? Because I think the most likely, the most likely default is to allow reversion, to bit by bit get into the groove again about the way that we did these things for the majority of the time. I found this in my own personal life. My wife and I, we've got three young children. And whilst, of course, there were some tough things about lockdown, there were times where now we used to talk on a lockdown weekend about how calm it was and how we weren't rushing to this or that and overcommitted. Anyone else just Give me a little wave of the camera. If there's parts, at least, of the quieter life that you enjoyed and you kind of lent into it and you'd say things to your loved ones like, oh, there's no way when this is over, we'll go back to, you should see the plan for my meeting this, my, my, um, my weekend. I mean, my weekends are now more overcommitted than my midweek. This kid needs this birthday party. This kid's playing cricket. This one's doing swimming. This is happening here. We revert to defaults, don't we? Because as profound and as powerful as those experiences were, actually, even though some of them were better and brought more joy, we revert back to the way things were because that's the way we've done things for the majority of the time. And so too, the power of defaults are playing out in our teams, in our educational institutions, in our governance, that of course we all acknowledge we've been through something. But in the exhaustion, in the recovery period, rather than pursuing renewal deliberately and learning from it, we're finding that people find comfort in reverting back to the way things were before. So I'm going to ask you to reflect here, and I'd love everyone to share something. It's not personal and there's no judgment. And for a lot of it, it's in our own work. But what potential do you see for a snapback to default ways of working? What are you potentially already noticing in your team, across your organization, or within the system that you work? Can you reflect here and drop in an insight sometime in the next 20 seconds? Go for it. Thanks for those already joining. Expectation for colleagues to work from offices again. 
the fragility of some staff relationships and perhaps particularly people say, oh, we've all, we're all leaning together. We're all one. We're working as a team. And then you might start to see some of those old dynamics come back. Staff reflecting on how much they truly valued. Yep. Uh, more face-to-face -face time, busyness at the calendar. Great call out, James. The pupil staff leaders. Uh, real social interactions. Hybrid models can work to a certain extent. On-site for 100% of the time again. Loss of innovation back to how we used to work. Worrying about external accountability. Staff losing the feeling of technology innovation. Now we're back into the classroom. And remember, staff have taught vast, unless you were a new teacher during COVID, the vast majority of their career have been taught in a circumstance that is nothing like what we've just been through. The default settings are quite ingrained. So there's no judgment here. It's an observation. And it may not be true in your team. It may not be true in your organization. I don't want to stand out on the outside and say, this is the way things are. But it is what I'm observing in my work alongside many leaders across various systems. And so I want to tell you, if you lead an organization, if you're in governance, that if you want to see a result that is basically a reversion to Education 2019, just do what we're doing. A recipe for reversion is just to let this play out until we find our natural grooves and ways of working again. And so I've been thinking about what would it be like to actually purposely lead for renewal, to honor what we've been through by making sense of it and then starting to systematically as a team, as an organization, as a group of schools, as a local authority, wherever you're serving, systematically make sure we honor what we've been through by making sense of it and systematically pursuing renewal. See, I think COVID has been a wake up call, right? It was meant to be at least in our personal lives, in our organizational lives, and definitely in our educational lives to reassess what we do and how we do it. And yet what I'm noticing is that as individuals like me find that we head back to defaults in our exhaustion as a way of just coping with that level of exhaustion and recovering by doing that. When I'm working with government, well, government have spent the last three years holding back all the reforms and they've been holding them back and holding them back. And now they don't want to hold them back anymore. And what I'm finding in each and every system is that as governments have started to say, we've got all these bits and pieces, we've held them back, we've held them back. And whether they're a new government, a returning government, ongoing, suddenly the curriculum reform is coming in Wales, in my state of New South Wales. Curriculum change, big change. Changes in inspection, changes in accountability changes in how we're trying to recruit and sustain great teachers and great leaders. And in all of this, suddenly what's happening is in the busyness from outside and the natural recovery from inside, I think we're actually missing an opportunity to pause in the space, in this luminal space between phases and ask what would it look like in Wales to pursue a renewal of how we go about our work lives, a renewal about how our teams work together, a renewal about our schools or what other organizational structures that you lead and the renewal indeed of your local authorities or of your system more broadly. What would it be like to actually say we want to pursue renewal? 
for me, a recipe for renewal really involves bringing together the best of the past. It's got to involve bringing the best of the past. It's probably also got to involve bringing together what's been emerging, these innovations you've all been talking about, the lessons that have been learned. So I want a bit from the past for sure, the things that we really missed and that we longed for, the timeless elements of education in your context. We need the bits that we innovated and that are emerging over time. And the third part of this recipe, I think, is what we've been yearning for. The stuff that we've started to realise is actually what we're all on about here and that we want to pursue with new rigour and direction. And so I think it's worth for all of us asking, what are we doing to lead renewal and to avoid natural defaults and the return to education 2019? Well, I want to give you something a little bit more practical here about what you might want to be thinking about within your team or within your organisation or cluster of schools, cluster of educational uh, institutions that you're working with, to try to say over the next three, six months, as we go and dig into the big pieces of work that we're getting into, how might we systematically be thoughtful about leading this renewal? And I reckon there's three key steps. I think we need to capture I think we need a cleanse and I think we need a weave. Let me give you a sense of these. And then, Paul, let's open up for some questions, some comments, some thoughts about how these ideas play out in the, in the leadership lives of those joining us this morning. So I think one of the most important things to do, and I know many of us have done this to some extent at different parts of the pandemic, but as it's continued on and stretched far beyond what we might have thought, it's often been a while since people have come together and said, what actually happened and in what ways did we really innovate new approaches? I think we need to capture. The great thing about capturing is you don't have to decide yet what you're going to do with that capture. We don't have to come together and say, so we went through this whole thing. What are the profound shifts that we now need to make going forward? I'm too tired for that. But actually, it's a way of honouring what I've been through to help me have a moment to capture what practices and approaches have we gained or did we innovate that we do not want to lose? You see, things came up in the cracks, didn't they? Different ways of working. There's all sorts of things. People want to talk about the way that we taught. And yes, there's an element of that that involves technology. But, you know, technology kind of runs across everything that we did as a tool for this work. But adopting different ways of how we plan to teach and how we taught and how we assessed at all levels of education that you're all working in. There was something around, we needed to build learner agency. We had to build their self-regulation, their motivation, their ability to take responsibility. We had to team in different ways. We use different platforms and processes and norms. And for me, to be honest, this teaming area is the area that I, I find most heartbreaking to watch the reversion, that the adults are going back to the way they used to work. And it's utterly unnecessary in how we do professional learning together and what we do to lift expertise and how that happened or how we partner with families and how we move forward. And what I want to suggest is that people have deep experiences. They've, they've tried things. They liked things. Things were tried and things were better. And they learned a whole range of things about learning and how to actually move forward with students and particularly around serving diverse learners. They learned things about their own craft of teaching. 
They learned things about how they could team in different ways with higher trust and more flexibility. And they learned things about actually deeply engaging in parent and caregiver partnership. And so I think one of the things we must do is to capture, to find a way as an organization to capture what we've been through. And as we capture those things, to be able to then return to them at some point as a record of what's occurred. One of the ways I've been doing this in different organizations and schools in a really simple way is either using a Google Doc or a Microsoft Live OneNote. And uh, even if we're working in person, just simple cards or post-its and asking people to capture some of the changes that they've experienced, some of the innovations and say, we just wanna capture these at the moment. What was the change and what were the benefits? What were the things that required to do it? Whether people capture it on simple cards or post-its, often it's even best done through a live Google or Microsoft document where you can capture what people did differently. What did they learn across various themes? I often do this live over just 15 to 20 minutes in a meeting, just a gender item in a staff meeting or a team meeting and say, hey, if anyone's interested here, what we want to do is just pause together and live and anonymously type live into a document. I suggest keeping this document open for maybe three to six months. Keep it open so people can keep coming back to it almost like a time capsule where the ideas and the memories of those experiences are still fresh enough to be captured and to be returned to at a later stage. If you're interested in some of those simple templates that you could copy from Google or otherwise, I put a couple of resources here and uh, with some slides as well, and feel free to download those later on and we'll send them out by email through the group. So I think we need to capture, we need to ask some questions about you know, what we've recently gained that we don't wanna lose. What new ways of working do we want to keep and deepen? What fresh lessons have we learned or what new insights have we gained? And do an absolute capture of this before it falls out of memory and recent lived experience. The second step for me is about realizing that one of the big lessons of the pandemic is that we need to do less but better. One of the heartbreaking things in the return to defaults is those talking about how we've all returned now to the absolute overload of our schedules. Well, one of the second things I think we've got to definitely learn and capture from the last few years is what did we stop that we do not want to bring back? And you might say, it's too late, Simon, it's already back. But what did we stop that we do not want to bring back? What are the things you want to get rid of? Or what could we further simplify? There were a range of things, particularly around how the adults met together, the reduction of meetings, the, the, the simplicity of how we're communicating, the clarity that we all needed about what was needed and at what time. We pulled back on things and created space because we were forced to. But as the pandemic has pulled back, we've gone rushing back to do the things the way we were doing before. So I think the concept of cleanse or to prune, to pull back is crucial here. I wonder uh, if you were being most provocative or clear, and even if it's already come back in, what would you put on your do not let back in list at the end of the pandemic that was reduced during a certain period of the last few years? 
that you would want to say this should not be let back in the way we worked in that way or in this in, in that mode shouldn't be let back in what would you put on that list go for it drop something into the chat that comes to mind for you and don't worry we, we won't get you into trouble we won't name you here if you say something direct yeah great one making everyone drive to one campus for meetings you know there might be times, of course, where we need to be together, but often the travel for meetings, when are the ones we absolutely need to be together because together they're relational and where are the ones that we can be systematic and thoughtful and save time? I wonder what other ones you'd put on the do not let back in list. Some of the professional learning days that's sort of one to everyone no differentiation no ability to pick and choose we're just in a hall we're just in a space and everyone's getting it pointless meetings what can we share again uh, uh meetings and emails meetings and emails meetings and emails is a great excuse for not actually progressing the real work so there's all sorts of things here that might come to mind and when i think about cleansing i think about what might you want to keep out what might you want to stop and reduce and what might you want to further simplify I mean, this has got to be the moment. If we don't do it now, when are we going to get an opportunity to do it again in the future? And so I think our cleanse questions are what things did we live without that we should avoid letting back in? What are the inessential things that you want to get rid of? You, you've come to a new awareness of it. It doesn't move the needle. It's not critical. And what did we reduce and how can we further simplify that process? During the lockdown periods and the COVID periods, we got very good at getting to the point of simplifying, of ensuring that we're focused on productive output, not just seat time or um, meeting time. And yet already in our business, I feel like we're returning. What do you need to cleanse and how do you capture those ideas? And lastly, this concept of to weave. You know, when we think about renewal, the difficult thing is, well, how do we weave these new ways of working with the existing ways that were there before and the new things coming down to us from our system? We should expect that without the pressure cooker of the external environment, that it's very likely that many of the even really innovative things, the things that people found better and interesting, those practice may well wither away. And so part of our job as weavers is to think together, okay, so we've got the past, we've got things coming down in the future, and we've got these things that we experience and we learnt that we don't want to lose. So how over time might we take things from our capture document and our cleanse document and embed them into our team or improvement plans? We've got to find a way to legitimise them, to bring them into the organisational structure and process. Where might we actually upgrade a process or a structure or a routine or a meeting cadence such that actually we capture some of those insights and we move it into our way of working? Are there people in our teams that could take ownership of some of these things, these things that have emerged that you can't get done on your plate? But actually, as we start to think about how to push it forward, we facilitate some broader ownership to move things forward. And how are you in your leadership constantly reinforcing the need to sustain some of the ways of working that we experienced before. As we weave things forward, we're going to ask questions, what is really essential for us to take forward? What's feasible? 
how can we work to sustain some of the most positive changes that we saw and experienced, but have actually already started to drop away and return to defaults? And how do we collectively find our way back to those longer term improvement patterns, but without losing some of the things we learned, some of the things we innovated? I think if you're starting to see a return to defaults, a snapback into ways of working, like it's education 2019 again, then I consider deeply how you might be able to run some capture on a regular basis, consider how to cleanse, and then systematically weave some of these things going forward. I know we're all working and serving in very different contexts here, but I think these approaches work across multiple different approaches and at different levels of the system. So moving forward together, we talk a lot about the levels of exhaustion and the impact of COVID on our educational system. I think we now need to start to consider what is it on us as leaders to lead through this moment? I think across the educational sector, people stepped up and led through the crisis and adaptation moment. And the danger is in our exhaustion and our recovery, that the absence of our systematic and intentional leadership may well mean on the other side of this, we basically return to where we were before. And whilst in many ways that should be applauded, that we made it through, that we kept many of our people safe, that we continued the learning, there is a sense where we might have lost the opportunity to take our systems and our schools and our educational institutions and our higher ed institutions and our institutions that serve youth and young people into a different place. One author in the New York Times talked about, well, one way of thinking about what we've all been through is possibility shock. The startling understanding that things could be different on a grand scale, if only we collectively wanted that enough. He writes, I beg of you, take a deep breath, ignore the deafening noise and think deeply about what you want to put back into your life. This is a chance to define a new vision of normal, a rare and truly sacred opportunity to get rid of the BS and to only bring back what works, what makes our lives richer, what makes our children happier, what makes us truly proud. I feel like we're actually in this time that is ripe for rethinking and renewal. And for leaders that see that what we've been through is not just to have gone through to get to the other side, but to get to a place to now build towards renewal, I think they're the ones that are going to be able to honour what everything we've been through by ensuring those innovations and those practices and those new ways of working aren't lost to the return to defaults. But for many of us, if we miss that, actually, we're not out the other side, but indeed moving into the next phase of the leadership of this incredible once in a hundred year type pandemic, then we'll miss out on the dividend, the long-term dividend that might be waiting for us on the other side of all this work. So Paul, there are some of the frames, the provocations I wanted to uh, raise with colleagues to kick off. I know there'll be some questions, some comments, some points of disagreement and the like. And so why don't I hand over to you as we start to bring some thoughts from the room into the broader discussion now.
Wonderful, Simon. Thank you so much. And colleagues, please, yeah, feel free to post your questions, comments in the chat, and I'll try to kind of curate them and draw them together over the next kind of few minutes. I mean, while people are just kind of formulating their thoughts, Simon, I wanted to kind of put a question to you. Um, obviously, you've touched on, on lots of it, but I think one of the big strengths of our academy here in Wales is, is bringing leaders together. So in this room now, you know, we've got a group of 50 plus colleagues, all of a similar mind, I think, you know, from different layers of the system, different kind of levels of experience. In your kind of opinion, you know, how do we support each other as colleagues across Wales in our, in our diverse roles in this? And I suppose a two-point question, what, what do we do first? Because we all have our own organisations, but how do we kind of affect that, that collective change in the system of not stepping back? What would your advice to us be? Yeah, well, uh, number one, uh, I love that you've got this curation through the academy. It, it's rare and it's wonderful. You should hold on to that. Uh, and I would say because of the diversity of context, Paul, and the various uh, institutions you're leading, and I'd focus on shared process rather than necessarily shared outcome. So, you know, I would, you know, this is a great example of curating a conversation and saying, hey, uh, what are we doing on a regular cadence curated by the academy to be a community of practice interested in renewal? And so it may well be, you know, you start off by saying, um, how are people approaching uh, ensuring by the end of 2022, they allocate a small amount of time and energy to a capture process? And people beaver away and they say, in our institution, it looks like this. And we've done a live Google Doc and it took 20 minutes and we captured this. And some and other people said, oh, well, that wouldn't work for us. We're multi-campus and we've worked this way. So I think um, putting it on the agenda and then asking uh, what are the actual specific tactical ways you've gone about doing that work um, would be a practical side on the capture. On the other piece, it's also just noticing, you know, what are some of the long-term knock-on effects of what we've been through and helping people on a, on a regular cadence. Again, when you come together, one of the things I asked, you know, my community practice earlier today that I was meeting with in New South Wales is just, what are you noticing? What are you noticing about where your people are at this October? And trying to move beyond Paul from a broad, yeah, we're through a pandemic and it's really disrupted and everything's everywhere and people are pretty tired and no, no, specifically, let's hone in and get that situational awareness. And so that's another thing you can do as a network. Uh, you can sort of have this network intelligence whereby you can tune in and sort of say, what are you noticing about your people? What are you noticing about where they're at? What are you noticing about what they're focusing on? What are you noticing about their ability to uh, work on long-term and difficult projects? And you can sort of have this little bit of a web that can suck up those insights. And I think collectively you can get a sense of, uh, where the broader system is up to right now. That's brilliant, Simon. Thank you. I think it's, you know, yeah, a really important role for the Academy in terms of drawing us all together with such a diverse system. And uh, whilst we're a fairly small country geographically, there are lots of kind of, you know, we're, we're fairly spread out as well in terms of our experiences and what we're doing. So I think that's great. We've got a question from Bryony. Bryony, thank you so much for this, all around the kind of those challenges of renewal. Bryony, are you happy to ask this in person if we, if we kind of um, if we bring you up on, on screen? Yes, absolutely. Hi, um, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much, Simon. Um, yes, yeah, so I, my question was just around that sometimes um, there can be a deep rooted fear around the notion of substantial change. And I think um, that often it can fall to those that are kind of passionate and excited about the idea of moving things forward. And you're kind of left, I, I think, exhausted sometimes battling those that sometimes have a louder voice to want to go back. So it's just really to get an insight on how do you take everyone with you on this? 
Well, number one, let's be clear, you're probably not going to take everyone with you and that's okay. Um, I think what I'm trying to argue, let me see if I can get this right uh, and come back to me here. So often when we talk about large scale change, uh, particularly before the pandemic, we are talking theoretically, we're using you know, broad conceptual language about the future of learning and where we might want to go and the future of professional learning and teamwork. It was very conceptual. And I actually think we deserve a bit of that pushback and skepticism where people are basically saying, but what would it look like in practice? And uh, you know, um, even if it, what it looked like in practice, could I do that? And what they're really looking for is practical examples and social proof. Like, is this possible here and could I do it? Well, I think what I'm arguing here is not necessarily to go after utterly new things again that we haven't seen, but to say, we have done these things. You did these things. The social proof is in your own practice, your own teamwork. I'm not talking about necessarily going off and doing something on a new horizon yet again. I'm talking about at the high watermark of innovation in 2021 or whenever it was in your context, People did some of these things. They were able to do some of these things and now they're reverted. So I think one of the things is to focus first on the things that people did, they were able to do, and they wouldn't have done it without the pressure cooker of, of, of COVID. They did it. They all acknowledged it was actually a better way of working, but now they've reverted back to ways of working. And I would try to identify those things and talk about the social proof about we did these things, we experienced these benefits, and what we're trying to do is to move towards not something conceptual, but something very tangible uh, and getting lots of different people uh, to be speaking about and sharing about the specific, whether it's teaching practices or professional learning practices or the meeting practices or communication practices that, that were occurring at a certain time and then trying to go after those. So that would be one thing I'd say from a different body of my work. When I think about dealing with resistance, uh, typically I just say, make it um, easier to do, easier to see, and easier to make progress. So by this um, easier to do, which is the change you want to make, try to strip out all of the complexity, um, try to give people tools and time, make it as easy as possible for them to do the new thing. To easier to see, and this is about social proof and examples. When they say, "What does this look like in practice?" and you know, "How would it look in our context?" Trying to actually invest in some of those examples within your own context, and then easier to make progress. And this is this idea that when you're first trying something out, you want to have a really high success rate early on. Uh, I don't want to share too much here, Paul, but I don't ride a skateboard. Uh, because like many people, my first experiences of it weren't all very positive, and then I've avoided it since. Uh, and so too, when we're starting things new, um, if you have some negative experiences in your first few attempts, you often just give up and you don't return. And so there's a lot of evidence around having really successful starts, trying to pair it right back and help people have some quick and early wins. They don't yet have to have bought into the idea. And part of the thinking is that motivation comes as a byproduct of making progress rather than necessarily being a prerequisite for getting started. So lots of stuff there uh, that I hope might be useful. Uh, and I'll just say that's the natural state of things. And we've got to get really, really savvy about how we, how we think about moving people forward.
Brilliant. Thank you, Simon. Brian, thank you for your question. Um, your answer there, Simon, I think touched on with a question that's popped up from iPhone. So I haven't got the full name on there, just about creating that kind of those those unpressured spaces. So I think you've kind of covered lots of that. We've got a kind of a, a real big one here from Dan Coles about kind of inspiring a whole system to change kind of thing. And again, I think that links to what Simon Roberts has popped in the question too, as well. What's pushing us back in this direction? You know, how can we push back against that sort of that, that snapback that you were alluding to earlier? Um, Simon, I don't know if you want to come on and ask your question here or... Yeah, uh, Borodar, Great, Paul, Borodar, everybody, um, good morning, um, Simon. Um, yeah, I, th I don't think there's anybody who's gone through all this and thinks, I don't want to return to that, I don't want to do this anymore, we want to change, and those conversations go on in every school, I think. But do you see that there's a, are there groups, whether it's societies, it's schools, is it government, is it parents, they say, that are pushing us back towards that? snap back and go going back to the default or is it just human nature as you suggested earlier uh simon thanks for your question i think it's worth uh pondering in your various contexts and i, I want to first say uh i'm not sure <laughs> it could be all of those things uh, i'm trying to make an observation of what i um see and i think your question gets to the the deeper question of why are we seeing that if you are seeing it perhaps you're not my hypothesis would be, Simon, is that uh, whilst others have returned to a workplace that has been utterly changed, you know, in any core city office block now, they're at 50% or below occupancy, we had to go back to our educational institutions to look after the students in our care. And so I think we rapidly return to the same environments uh, and environment plays a huge role in behavior. And so we rapidly return to environments and triggers in our environment that were basically telling us, um, telling our bodies and our minds and our habits to uh, re-engage with the things that we were doing before. Very quickly, you're back into a timetable that looks similar before, you're back into a cadence. So uh, I would say that uh, it, it is probably more like natural human nature, particularly with the return back into almost identical environments. And I think it's secondly been um, exacerbated because of this phenomenon that I've seen that most governments have held back all their reforms and then they're just kind of like a dam overflowing, just letting them run now because they can't hold them back. That pressure from above probably also is a trigger that sends people into, um, uh, into that kind of uh, recovery or survival mode uh, as, as head teachers or as other leaders. And so, yeah, I think it's a combination of natural human nature, our environments and our cadence of working haven't really changed on return, that there's many, many pressures coming from above. And so for me, I think it's about being really, really clear about the small number of things that we think uh, we either started doing that we want to continue or stop doing that we want to keep stop doing or keep reduced. And if we can name them, then what we'll need to do is for the things we want to continue, we want to try to cultivate them and set up some structures and processes that are highly likely to make them work. And for the things that we wanted to get rid of, we need to put some speed bumps or we need to put some barriers to entry. You know, we need to do things like, uh, you know, uh, for adding extra meetings, you actually have to put some, you know, additional requirements that have to be triggered in order to go back to that way. So we need to somehow put some barriers around the non-return to those other pieces. But that's how I'd be kind of thinking through it. And it's why I say all of these things without any evaluation or judgment 
I actually just think this is the natural uh, recourse or the, the natural scenario we're going to live out in education because of these things. Uh, but my fear, I suppose, is how does that honour what everyone's been through? You know, that on the other side of all of this, it basically looks the same. And I just, it's kind of heartbreaking to think we got through it all to do it again the way it was before. Good. We've got a Noel next. So Noel Fitzgerald is, is popped up with a question about the middle tier. Um, and this is just to give a bit of context, Simon, for us here in, in Wales. We have quite a crowded middle tier. You're probably aware between sort of Welsh government and then sort of the school level kind of practice and what happens on the ground. Um, and so, yeah, Noel, I don't know if you'd like to ask your question now. Yeah, it's just really interesting. You Thank you very much, Simon, by the way. Uh, talking about speed bumps and, and maybe, um, you know, our relationship changed with our middle tier quite drastically because of, of COVID. Um, and it's really, how can we benefit from some of the, what we would see as school leaders as the benefits to having that, as you put, kind of simplified, slimmed down um, relationship and move forward with that rather than revert back to, to our old systems with people who are, whose responsibility it is to monitor and who we are accountable to and who we may not have as much impact in terms of changing the systems. What, what would you say on that one? Well, firstly, you know, I'd actually want to say that if anyone is, you know, from local authorities and governance and others, we, we need to encourage them to go through that fundamental rethink of what have we learned and what is essential? What is essential? Um, what is it that we really need to know about how our schools are going and what might be the leanest and simplest way that we might learn about those things? I think there is uh, obviously a return to sort of clunky, weighty kind of approaches that don't necessarily surface deep insights and generate what uh, my friend Tom Sherrington from England calls speed camera behaviours, which is how do you drive when you know there's a speed camera coming up? And, you know, from my perspective, and this is not quite the answer, um, but from my perspective, the number one goal of the middle tier is to help schools become self-improving. The number one goal of inspection and accountability is to build the self-evaluation capability of schools. Uh, because what we actually need is for schools to be constantly checking in on where they're up to and how they're going and what they need to do next and, and flagging with the middle tier if, they perceive there's challenges and needs for capability. Otherwise, we return to a process of, um, you know, forms of accountability and inspection, which might be well-meaning, but end up taking away educators from their core work because they're preparing all the, the, the materials. And then we see speed camera behaviors. We'll show you a performance of our best that we can. Then we get on the other side and we think, oh, how long before that happens to me again? So, I have no clear answers other than all the number one, this is on governance as well at the middle tier to say uh, what is essential in our work and what do we really want to see in our schools and how might we know about it. Two, uh, we, we had to trust our schools incredibly over the last two and a half years to do much more difficult things than what they're currently doing. And we trusted them in a decentralized network and we, we shared our strategy and they contextualize that strategy and implement it in their context. And we trusted that they were doing okay. And if they weren't, they had the psychological safety to raise their hand and say, we need help with this. And we developed this way of working that was higher trust, more devolved. Um, and I just want to sort of say, why would we go back to 
hierarchical top-down performance type ways of working when we've experienced uh, a, a different way of working. Uh, I have no uh, clear guidance to you on that, but I, uh, I definitely empathize with the, the whiplash you may well be experiencing uh, from the way that schools were, I, I think, engaged with from a middle tier across different parts of the world, not just in Wales, to a return now of uh, some of those drivers that uh, may not necessarily be at the same level of partnership, trust, devolved responsibility, uh, ways of working that you experienced during COVID. Thank you, Noel. Thank you so much again. Um, we're running out of time now, only a couple of minutes left and a couple of interesting questions here that come up. One is from um, David around um, citizenship and kind of climate change. We've just had one drop in though as well um, from Maya Hughes around um, students lacking in confidence and, and resilience. And so again, I suppose that links back to the idea around citizenship and the kind of, you know, creating the, the, the young people that we all work with. So Maya, I don't know if you'd like to come on and, and, and ask your question. Sorry, um, David, we may not have time for the one about climate change at this stage, but uh, if you're able to pop up, that'd be great and ask. Thank you, lots would really resonate this morning. The thing about having trust and developing that kind of different level of uh, professional learning, et cetera, really uh, resonates. Um, but then I was really thinking, actually, you know, have we done enough to address the students? Um, there is certainly that resilience, lack of resilience and confidence coming through. Are we thinking enough really about how we address the changing needs in the students and what can we learn from them, I guess, in terms of weaving forward um, maybe changes and things we want to keep and cleanse, but also maybe things we might need to do differently to address the different needs of the students and, and community in general maybe going forward. Mm, well, you know, thanks for your question. Uh, uh, I agree. There's some really powerful frames there. Whilst I was focusing a little bit on how you can engage your staff, as I've run these capture processes, we've typically run it for students as well and wanted to capture whether written or video, uh, asking people to capture what were the things you experienced, particularly during lockdown learning, that you uh, want to flag that was really productive and useful to you. And a lot of people talk about uh, high levels of trust or different types of feedback and engagement that they had with their teachers. So I think that's really useful. Uh, to capture that and to again to do it while living memory is still around I know it feels like oh it's just last year it was just it, it, it'll go from the primacy of memory uh, pretty soon um, secondly I'd probably want to say that uh, the the lower levels of well-being mental health confidence and resilience are really natural so when you've been through two and a half years the psychologists will tell you you know the the kids will look at the adults to say, is everything okay? And when they look up and they look at the adult's eyes, like if a dog barks near a kid, you'll see the kid looks up at the adult's eyes and the adult's really calm and everything's okay. The kid will be like, everything's okay. Well, our kids have been looking up at the adult and the adults have been going, I have no, no idea what to do, right? At home and school and at work and as much as we've done. And so, and then you combine that with the 24 hour news cycle constant news, constant news, constant news, constant news on things that are bad and things that aren't, you know, is it as bad as the Cold War? Is it as bad as this? I don't know, but it's, they're getting it all, all the time. And so one of the things I would say, I think we're overloading uh, and we have overloaded. And part of that lack of confidence, that lack of resilience is uh, probably a natural consequence of what they've been through. And the question is now is how we can use research-based approaches, not just goodwill to make progress here. I'm seeing a huge waste across schools whereby because they've got well-being on the agenda, they're going out and grabbing something 
and they're grabbing something that has some sticker of well-being and social emotional learning, but there's no active ingredients in it. There's not actually any substance. It's some consultancy that used to teach dance, which I'm all up for teaching dance, but no, you don't get to now say it's social emotional learning. Like, so we've in the well-being and space and resilience space, we have a tendency in education, particularly the school sector, to allow anyone to kind of come in. And it seems crazy to me. Like we actually need to say, what is the evidence base about how you might actually systematically build up resilience as an individual? What would that look like? What are the underlying skills? Uh, so that'd be a second point of I really agree that we need to do something, but we shouldn't just do something shouldn't just treat, we've got to work out, do we have a treatment that has evidence that has an active ingredient that could move the needle? Um, you know, I was even just looking before I got on a, a big, large meta study of mindfulness, uh, not showing uh, any impact. Now, you know, I'm all up for saying, yeah, let's, let's, let's start to do approaches of things that might um, help students. And I myself, my own life have had benefit from a mindfulness practice, but we've actually got to look at what the studies say as well about how these work and not just throw things at it. Uh, a third point would be around resilience as a collective or as a community asset. Uh, I'm a big fan of starting to get away from the individual, thinking about the individual has to be confident, resilient, gritty. Uh, but it's like, well, no, we're human. We're a social animal. And so I think increasingly what I'm a big believer in schools is that schools are the, process, uh, are the place where we can build collective resilience, relational resilience. And so getting away from life is hard and kid, you need the skills of resilience and say, no, we need resilience as a collective capability. And again, thinking about elements of uh, building deep connections and relationships and starting to think about how we can, I think, reframe resilience as something that the individual has to be strong enough to always bounce back and to think about resilience as a, a community, as a, as a shared asset. There's some of the things I'm kind of thinking through. Uh, David, to your climate change kind of piece and those broader questions, all I would say is, uh, I think this is the point of what are we yearning to do? Like, did we really go through all of this just to do, uh, you know, I didn't share this slide, but I think about this yearn and I think, you know, now that we've had a chance to reset, what do we truly long for in our collective educational future? Right? What do we truly long for? Uh, what what do we really want our young people to grapple with? And of course, I want them to secure uh, literacy in, in Welsh and in English. I want them to secure numeracy. There's no access to higher order thinking without those things. But then I think we're all now grappling with how do you help young people know how to live and to navigate these kind of complex times and how to make values and ethical kind of judgments in the context of uh, challenges like climate change and inequity and others. And so, um, yeah, I, I think there is a time here and for maybe this is part of this thing of what are the conversations the academy should be having? I think they should be having conversations that are grounded in empirical evidence about what might work. And then they need to have conversations that aren't empirical. They're actually ethical and moral. And they're asking what is worth investing in, what is worth developing in a young Welsh learner? And that's not necessarily empirical. I think uh, it, it's very much around uh, values, morals, ethics, around what is worth developing in a young person. And maybe I close out with this, I know we're out of time, but that's what curriculum change is meant to be about, by the way. <laughs> it's not just, you know, changing the sequence of how you might teach the, the phonemes of Welsh or 
or English and how you might, they're all important no matter how you teach big ideas in numeracy. These are important, but curriculum is meant to be about passing on to this generation the best that we have collectively come to know. Uh, they don't have to agree with it all and they can know it so they can critique it. But I still think there's something there about uh, what, what is education for and what are we yearning to give these young people? And if we don't come out of COVID and looking at the, the psychological uh, challenges um, that we're facing individually and collectively, if we attack these by just saying, oh, it's mindfulness programs for all and it's positive behavior journaling and gratitude for all, we've lost it. Like these young people are looking for purpose and narrative and how to situate themselves in ongoing complexity. And yeah, I, I think we need to elevate the conversation from uh, just a few wellbeing initiatives. All right, Paul, I've gone on a ramble. Four words. I had four words that I wrote down. This is how much I prepared for you here. Amazing. Look at this. I wrote down four words. Can I just finish with this? Please. These are my four words that I've been thinking about today uh, for leaders now. So the first one is decades. Think about decades, not days. We've all been thinking about days. And so the first word I've got for you is think about decades. The second word I've got for you is the gardening metaphor. It's time to prune and we need to prune back aggressively so that we get that new growth coming out. The third word I've got for you is margin. And by that, I mean, keep margin. One of the things we know about resilient systems is they don't use up all their capacity. They keep margin. And yet most of your calendars look as though they're already full. Most of the time is already out. So how will you cope with unexpected things again? One of the core lessons we should have learned is you've got to keep margin. And we're not already. You should have at least 15 to 20% margin saved this year and at the front end of next year. So we don't get surprised by the unexpected yet again. And the fourth word I wrote down, Paul, was cadence. And this is this idea of finding your cadence again. And Paul, when you're talking about the operational knocking around and someone, one of the ways I think about that is when you're either bike riding or running and you, you, you have to stop your cadence, a car comes in front of you and it's like, oh, and then you got to go again. But the idea now is not to try to sprint and somehow make up for all lost ground, whatever that is, but to find the natural improvement cadence. Just get into the rhythm again. Find a natural flow. It's not about getting it all done between now and the Christmas break. It's actually more important to find a rhythm of improvement that's a little bit less intense, a little bit less urgent. Uh, and I, I reckon if you can think in decades, not days, aggressively prune, keep margin, don't feel guilty about it, and focus on finding your cadence rather than getting it all done. Uh, they're some of the things I've been thinking about and uh, wanted to share them before I go. Simon, massively inspiring, really wonderful. Thank you so, so much. Um, and again, we could keep talking all morning, I'm sure, with, with colleagues in the room. Uh, but it's, it's time to hand over to Tegma now, just the formal thanks on behalf of the Academy. Thank you, Simon. Dear Paul, a huge thank you to Simon. Dear Convaur, um, E.T. Simon, um, er, Kavluniad, that has been um, so thought provoking and really resonated with us all here this morning. The comments speak for themselves. And I can see Helen Jones has had to leave and she says, you know, had to leave this meeting to join another one. And she says the irony isn't lost on her having to find that space. You've, you've just said so much. I, I, could, I could spend 
you know, a long time thanking you and picking up some of the things that have resonated uh, resonated with me. But I think for those that are still online this morning, um, you talked about the network intelligence, and that is something that we can offer as an organisation to bring people together. And you said about noticing. What are you noticing? So my my parting message to those that are still online is um, look look to self. Look about what things that you can do yourself and then look to your organization and, and see what, what you're noticing. But certainly there'll be your own your own um, ideas of what, what you take away from Simon uh, this morning and worth us revisiting, I think, um, again. Massive, massive thanks, Simon. I can't thank you enough for joining us this evening to you. A huge thank you, Dirkham Vaur to everybody who's joined us this morning for this uh, Leadership Unlocked uh, webinar. Grateful for everybody's presence, for everybody's um, words and, and questions that, that have joined us as, as well. Gobeithion eich bod wedi mwyn hair bennod hon o bodlediad yr Academy Arwynyddiaeth. Tan ysgrifiwch ar Spotify, podlediadau Apple neu Google a pheidiwch byth a cholli penod. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leadership Academy podcast. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts and never miss an episode.